Hi, Stephanie. Well, have you had a week or what? I had a week so that I now am um, just barely able to remember my own name, aside from all the details of genocide. I've been following the International Court of Justice hearing on provisional measures between Gambia and Myanmar over genocide. It's a kind of emergency session where the Gambia asked the court to order Myanmar to stop with what they say is a genocide of the Rohingya Muslim minorities. Asymmetrical haircuts, justice update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. So Janet, you also followed these hearings. What was your uh, best moment or most interesting bit? Well, I was mainly outside. um, So a lot of my way of seeing it was also through Twitter. And that was absolutely extraordinary. There were brilliant legal tweeters going on there. Priya Pillai was great on the first day. And then I saw Sergei Vasiliev was really taking over and he had some very cheeky comments. And then Mel O'Brien. Wow. All of her asides on her tweets where she disagreed with everything. And of course, even before it all started, I was really watching Sareta Ashraf, who's a great scholar on genocide. So I really loved the Twitter side of things. So what was a good moment or some good moments for you? I really like the back and forth about William Shabas, who on the second day representing uh, Myanmar said that there was no genocide against the Rohingya, um, that there might have been things that happened, but they didn't rise to the level of genocide. But then uh, on the third day, the Gambia kind of hit back at him, quoting himself back to him from an interview in 2013, where he seems to say that um, the acts that are happening in Myanmar against the Rohingya could amount to genocide, and so seemingly to contradict himself. And then today, of course, after that, um, Shabas couldn't resist getting back at that and saying, well, you know, that was an hour long interview and the journalist kind of cherry picked and I was taken out of context and I never did say that genocide occurred. But it was a, it was an interesting back and forth uh, where everybody was looking at the same article from 2013. Yeah, always blame the journalist, isn't it? But anyway, let's uh, hear some of the atmosphere from inside the courts, uh, what people had to say and from outside the courts. And we've put together a series of sound clips for you. Today, The Republic of the Gambia is asking you to inspire that same hope which you have given to generations to the Rohingya in Myanmar. To hear their cries of genocide and their cries for help. This is what the chairperson of a state-level investigative committee said about the widespread and well-documented rape of Rohingya women. He said it was inconceivable because they are very dirty. The Bengali Rohingya women have a very low standard of living and poor hygiene. They are not attractive, so neither the local Buddhist men nor the soldiers are interested in in them. We are very honored today, you know, the highest, highest court in the world, you know. They are honoring our identity, they recognize our plight, And, you know, they are trying to solve this problem. Mr. President, it cannot be ruled out that disproportionate force was used by members of the defense services, in some cases, in disregard of international humanitarian law, or that they did not distinguish clearly enough between ARSA fighters and civilians. There may also have been failures to prevent civilians from looting 
or destroying property after fighting or in abandoned villages. But these are determinations to be made in the due course of the criminal justice process, not by any individual in the Myanmar government. Can there be genocidal intent on the part of a state that actively investigates, prosecutes, and punishes soldiers and officers who are accused of wrongdoing? Whatever the number, every death is tragic. Families have been devastated, and killing non-combatants in an armed conflict may violate the right to life. But 10,000 deaths out of a population of well over 1 million might suggest something other than an intent to physically destroy the group. So that was the first clip was the Gambian justice minister. He was the agent for the Gambia, Abu Bakr Tambadu. And the other one was the only woman, uh, woman that the Gambia had speaking. It was um, Tafadzwa Pasipanoja, um, I think a Zimbabwean lawyer, who went uh, in detail about the sexual violence against the Rohingya. And I really like that quote to show what kind of excuses are being made for that rapes apparently did not occur, according to Myanmar. And then we had uh, Naisan Nguyen. Um, he's the co-founder of the Free Yohinja Coalition, an activist, and I met him at an event where a lot of different uh, Rohingya activists were speaking. And then we had Aung San Suu Kyi, the civilian leader of Myanmar, and also the agent for Myanmar presenting their case. And then we had William Chebas, who we've mentioned already. He's a renowned scholar of international law, um, and he was representing Myanmar. And to wind it all up, we had pro Aung San Suu Kyi demonstrators chanting for her outside as she left the Peace Palace on the second day. And that's what uh, I was really experiencing, was that atmosphere outside where you had these competing bands of um, people supporting either side and an awful lot of journalists as well. But uh, I don't know what's happened for you, Stephanie, but certainly everybody who I've met in The Hague who isn't involved in this, the first question they ask me is, why is Gambia involved? So when they ask me that, uh, what do you think I should be telling them? Well, what the Gambia also laid out painstakingly in their uh, submissions in court is that they say we've all, or um, Myanmar and the Gambia have both signed the Genocide Convention. It says that everybody who signs up for it should uh, prevent or punish genocide, and that's what we're doing. There is one country uh, committing genocide, Myanmar, and we, as a signatory to the to the convention, should do something about it. And I also tell them that um, Gambia itself is going through this big justice moment. It's got a truth commission going on, and there's a lot of lobbying about potentially putting the former dictator, Yahya Jammeh, on trial. So um, a lot of uh, justice is happening in the Gambia. And it's also really a personal um, journey, I think, of the, the Gambian Minister of Justice, um, Abu Bakr Tambadu, who we named before, because he is a former ICTR, or International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, genocide prosecutor. And he has told this story now a couple of times, but he has been to uh, Rohingya refugee camps in Cox's Bazar and spoke to refugees and said that when he's heard them speak, he recognized these stories and recognized the the atrocities and thought this this could rise to the level of genocide. I've heard this before 
in Rwanda and we're all saying never again and now it's happening again under our noses and somebody has to do something. So let's run through some of the arguments from each side. I'm sure we won't be able to cover everything, but uh, let's see if we can cover some of the main points. Uh, Let's take Gambia to start with. Well, Gambia started their case by laying out, you know, we are a member of this convention. We have the right to bring this case. Uh, We obviously have a dispute with Myanmar because we also sent diplomatic notes warning them. But mostly, and then they got to the, the really cut to the chase, which is that they believe that genocide is ongoing in Myanmar. And they did so by quoting lots of details from the fact-finding missions and really taking out some um, witness testimonies from these fact-finding commissions, reading them out in court about people who who were um, telling UN investigators about the rapes, about killings, about burning down of their villages. And they also, um, which was very nice for my Reuters colleagues who work very hard in Myanmar, um, g- cited a Reuters report about hate speech on Facebook against the Rohingya. And they also did uh, some concentration on the sexual violence, on the way that gender plays a role in genocide, which we've um, covered before. Um, and what really struck me uh, from the their submissions was this emphasis on what they wanted with provisional measures because we know that provisional measures as you know defined by the international court of justice can be quite um loose let's say and they really wanted some very specific ones they really were asking things like can we have access to investigators from the un for example in order to preserve the evidence and uh make sure that the court gets some progress reports even. And um, Gambia really put the emphasis, I thought, on um, making sure that the court itself um, sort of uh, lived up to expectations. Um, Philippe Sands, their lawyer, was saying the world's eyes are on you. Was there anything else that struck you or or were were you similarly struck by, by those aspects? Well, I thought it was very interesting. One of the things that really stuck out to me, because I have my uh, former Yugoslavia obsession, is that they really went into details uh, for access to evidence, but also that they wanted um, the judges to order Myanmar not to try and cover up evidence of killings and mass graves. And of course, this is one of the things that happened um, in the one genocide in Bosnia and Srebrenica is when um, the Bosnian Serbs heard that there was an international criminal tribunal going to investigate this. They started digging up bodies and putting them in, in secondary and even tertiary mass graves and really trying to hide evidence. And that is one of the reasons why even today there are still many, many thousand missing from Srebrenica. So I thought that was very poignant that they very specifically asked for that because we've seen it before and we can and we see how people try to hide the evidence of genocide. And, and they're very, very specifically addressing this. So so I'm interested to, to see what the court will do with that. And what did we hear from the Myanmar side in court? Well, um, we heard very few mention of the Rohingya. Basically, the term Rohingya only was mentioned when they referred to the full name of the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. Um, But every time they talked about the group that we would call Rohingya, they would just kind of use general terms. They would not really name them as a group. And, And a lot of people called that out on Twitter. 
Um, they also insisted on characterizing the fight with Rohingya activists or Rohingya rebels as an armed conflict, a rebellion, and so not a genocide. They were legitimately fighting uh, Muslim insurgents. And they stressed very much that the Myanmar military has its own justice system and they were putting people on trial for war crimes. And one thing that struck me was the um, emphasis on death, really, as part of, as an important way of judging uh, genocide or the numbers of deaths and suggesting that um, because not necessarily huge numbers of people have died, therefore maybe it wasn't uh, a genocide. Um, what else struck you? Now, the numbers game is something we always hear in genocide uh, discussions. Um, and it's... Um, in a way has already been disputed because every, Srebrenica, the genocide we were talking about before, was 8,000 men and boys. So there was also some debate of whether that was enough to constitute genocide. And now two international courts, including the International Court of Justice, have said, yes, it is. Um, it's not a, ma a matter of how many numbers, but just proportionately how many people of this part of the protected group. Um, another point that the Myanmar tried to make is that Gambia is not really doing this for itself, but it's just a front for the organization of Islamic cooperation, that they have no real dispute with Myanmar, but they're just acting for this organization of Islamic states, and um, that such an organization can't bring a claim under the Genocide Convention, and so the court should not accept this claim because Gambia is really acting like a proxy. And they didn't uh, actually um, touch on the allegations about rape and sexual and gender-based crimes, did they? Uh, which meant that the Gambian side uh, talks about the the kind of the amount of silence that they had, both as you mentioned before, on using the term Rohingya and on talking about uh, sexual crimes. Yes, I think there was. Um, they tried in rebuttal to say something about it. Um, Myanmar, but it was really, really, it only stressed how much they are not talking about it because, of course, the Gambia, uh, when it could have its uh, kind of right of reply, said, you know, you see, you aren't even mentioning sexual and gender-based violence. There is no mention of rape. You're not looking at this at all. And then in, in the rebuttal, Myanmar said, yes, um, you know, they are telling us that we're not looking at it. And of course, um, sexual and gender-based violence is really horrible and nobody should endure it and then kind of went on. So in, in the idea of saying that, yes, we're going to address this, they just said one or two sentences saying it's really bad all over the world, it shouldn't happen, and then went on to the next thing. So the, in making it more blindingly obvious that they're not addressing it at all. And were there any very specific uh, nerdy details that really uh, stuck out for you? Well, I found the way that Myanmar's lawyer, Shabas, tried to kind of say that the fact that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is only investigating crimes against humanity uh, means that, that the International Criminal Court doesn't think that um, there can be genocide in Myanmar was was very interesting because it was obvious to everybody who follows the ICC that um, the prosecutor Fatou Bensouda had to use this kind of crimes against humanity loop around uh, because they are not they don't have jurisdiction over Myanmar but they have it to neighboring Bangladesh so they needed to find a cross border crime 
And I spoke to many people uh, about this who are following this, uh, legal experts who kind of say that this might come back to haunt them because, of course, um, Prosecutor Ben Suda of the ICC will surely have had their tape recorder running to get some nice on-the-records quotes from um, Aung San Suu Kyi and Shabas who basically say that crimes against humanity and war crimes could very well have happened and there may have been all this stuff and that seems to be kind of uh, another opening for an ICC investigation. So so we might see more uh, on the ICC based on, on the declarations that we had in court um, yesterday. I found it quite... Um fun, let's say, the way that uh, Shabas was criticising some elements in one of um, Gambian's submissions and saying it was by a non-lawyer. And that was really a bit ironic because sitting next to him was another non-lawyer, Aung San Suu Kyi. Anything else? Well, um, as I said before, this uh, whole uh, Facebook hate speech thing, I thought was very—I was thought it was very interesting. And the Gambia raised it, uh, saying, "Is this is an element of genocide? People are being dehumanized. Look at what's all going on in Facebook." And the best Myanmar had to say is like, "Every country has people saying horrible things on Facebook. You know, um, it's not the responsibility of the government." And um, let those without sin cast the first stone. And I think that's a kind of argument that you hear a lot in courts where it's like, well, they began or they, you know, they did it first. It's like a child's playground argument. But in court, that's not going to hold up if you commit genocide because you say somebody else was mean to you first. You still committed genocide. So I don't know how that's going to hold up. And I found that uh, the way that they kept on discussing what was really meant when the first writing was being done about the Genocide Convention, uh, even using elements from Raphael Lemkin's uh, own notebooks at the time that uh, they're always trying to prove that their interpretation of the uh, Genocide Convention is better than the other side's interpretation of it. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely, there was definitely a lot of back and forth about what is really meant by the Genocide Convention. And so I, I looked it up and it's only four pages, so it doesn't go into great detail about what precisely everybody meant. So it means that there's a lot of room for interpretation and we saw that here. And Janet, you were outside with all the lobbying and the supporters I'm talking to them. Who do you think kind of won the public relations media uh reactions of war? Well, I'd say that um, the Rohingya were definitely more savvy. Um, maybe they were a bit overwhelmed by some of the attention that they were getting. And, and the fact that just that they were being discussed at this incredible, formal, terribly important space, um, many of them were very sort of practically focused in the sense that this was, they knew why they were there because they were really just getting their story on the record by by getting it discussed at uh, at the ICJ. But they were definitely very, very visible. Yeah, we, we saw some pro Aung San Suu Kyi supporters outside of the Peace Palace, but Myanmar didn't engage the press so much at all. I think uh, they let Aung San Suu Kyi do the talking for all of them. 
But Burmese media were there reporting. And what we heard from our Reuters uh, journalists in Myanmar is that uh, because the hearings were broadcast live, it was the first time that a lot of people back in Myanmar heard in such great detail what had happened to the Rohingya, according to the UN fact-finding mission. And and they were telling us, our colleagues in Myanmar were telling us that, that people were really shocked about the details and the extent of, of what they were describing. And what do you think we can actually expect uh, realistically to come uh, out of all of this? Well, the the judges are going to rule as soon as possible, which is probably within weeks. But, uh, you know, that's just a first step. And this is a this is a, a process that will go on for many, many years. And uh, most experts I talked to thought that there probably would be some provisional measures uh, installed. But it really, really depends on which they do, because sometimes the court just really says generally, like, please don't do anything that could aggravate the dispute. And that's not really very specific. But if they take up all of Gambia's suggestions and start being very specific with progress reports and allowing UN investigate or, or ordering that UN investigators are um, allowed in the country, that's going to be very interesting. What did you make of it? I could see it almost as a kind of rehearsal as well, too, because this was really the first time that we uh, got to hear exactly what the arguments would be, particularly on the Myanmar side, which we we didn't know exactly what they were going to say. Um, And I know that this case could go on for years and years, but but now at least we have um, on the record some understanding of what might uh, be discussed if it does go to a full case. Um, but, you know, let's say there are provisional measures and let's say you know, something is decided. What, what do you think is going to be the real impact of that? I think that the only kind of tangible impact it, is, it will have is that indeed the world's eyes will be maybe somewhat more on Myanmar, but they kind of have been. And so, you know, the ICJ has no real powers to enforce uh, any provisional measures. Um, and if we look back at the uh, the other genocide case, Bosnia got provisional measures um, against um, Serbia in 1993, and the Srebrenica massacre still happened two years after that. And um, it took until 2007 until the ICJ finally ruled in this case. So, so we're looking at a process of many, many years and also a court that, aside from a very large uh, moral authority, doesn't have many means to enforce um, provisional measures. So, so we really need to wait and see what goes on. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.